Kia ora e te whānau, kua whakarongo mai nei ki tēnei i pāho ki te kōrero i nga whakāro. Nau mai, haere mai ki CircuitCast, the podcast dedicated to artists' moving image. Ko Thomas and Slay tēnei, and today I'm really lucky to be chatting with artist Sandy Gibbs about a new series of works that examine the 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico. Kia ora rā, Sandy. Hi, Thomas, and thank you so much for inviting me to talk about my project. Oh, it's so great to have you here. I made a few notes about what you've been up to recently, and I, so I've written down that Sandy has recently completed her PhD at Deakin University in Melbourne in December, so congratulations, that's a huge achievement. And the PhD was entitled The Paradox of Failure, Sport, Competition and Contemporary Art. And this series of video works that we're talking about today and that we are going to be streaming on circuit, these works look at the 1968 Olympic Games in various angles, often with a feminist lens. And so to kickstart, Sandy, I just wondered if you could tell me a bit about where your interest in this particular 1968 Olympics started. It goes right back to when I was a child in Christchurch. I used to swim train and back then, um, I'm going to be showing my age, but Tui Shipston was a schoolgirl from Christchurch and she represented New Zealand at the 68 Olympics in Mexico. Uh, she was a swimmer and, of course, I had these dreams of going to the Olympics as a swimmer. And so I was holding out great hopes for Tui. Like, if she won a medal, then that was laying out my future for me. And she was in the final for one event only, and that was the 400-metre individual medley. And in that, she came seventh out of eight swimmers. And I just remember being so disappointed. But afterwards, Tui kind of faded from the public site. You know, it's like if you don't want a medal, then, you know, you're kind of, you're valued if you win a medal at the game. So come to some years later, I've kind of swum on and off over my life and I was, in a swim squad and I started thinking about Tui and I was thinking about challenging her to a swim race as an older woman now, like as an art project. And then I started thinking about that final in 1968 and I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if I could get the original eight swimmers together and re-race that final in Mexico City in the, in the Olympic pool? And what if Tui won gold this time? Wouldn't it just be incredible to sort of give this thing back to my hero. So that's kind of where it started from. I was really interested in this idea of the aging female body and sport and art and this kind of overlap of risk and uncertainty and life and art. So my first thing was I rang Tui. Yes, I was going to ask. That was my next question. <laughs> I thought I'll track her down. So um, I, I, actually, I actually phoned her and... She didn't want to talk to me at all. She didn't want to talk about the Olympics. And I didn't even get as far as asking her if she would race the race again. Okay. So the conversation didn't even get to that point. Didn't even get that far. And, you know, there I was in my mind already imagining us sitting next to each other, flying to Mexico City, you know. And <laughs> so I got off the phone and I was completely devastated. And, um, of course, this had been my big proposal for my PhD as well. So I was, like, emailing my supervisor, David Cross, going, well, I won't repeat what I'm saying, but anyway. <laughs> um, and he came back almost straight away and he was going, because I'd been interested in these ideas about failure and competition, and, and, and he, um, he, he came back 
like really positively and he goes well you know your project is about failure Mm. you should work with it so it kind of made me look at it in a different way and and that's kind of from then on the project sort of underwent a shift where I knew that I wasn't going to be able to get the whole eight competitors together because the main person has already said no Mm. Um, so I had to start thinking about other ways to enact the restaging of the race. Could you talk a little bit about that restaging and the work? It's quite a cinematic work. It has quite a cinematic audio track to it. It's like beautifully staged and coloured and shot. I wondered if you could just talk about the process of filming the race and its eventual form that it took. I'll, I'll give you a quick little background because I wasn't able to get any of the original swimmers. I, I tracked down some of them, but not all of them. So through a really convoluted series of events I managed to get seven swimmers from a master swimming club in Mexico City one actually was from Acapulco and I decided by then that I was going to be Tui Shipston so sort of by long distance I managed to get replicas of the original swimming togs made in Mexico City so I had to have all the fabrics printed and I worked with the people in Mexico City to create the patterns we had to get them all individually sized for the woman who put their hands up to say that they would take part in the race. So that was quite a lot to organise long distance. And when we got there, we, we all had to have a final fitting and all the togs, some of them had to be you know, adjusted. So in the meantime, I'd also arranged for a film crew in Mexico City. And it was an all-woman film crew. I decided that I wanted it to be filmed in the manner of sports reportage and sports filming. So the and normally they'd have cameras set up at different spots around a swimming pool. So I was very much picking up on that kind of mediatization of sports reporting. So what happened was we all turned up on the day and I found out to my horror that a couple of the swimmers couldn't do butterfly, which was one of the strokes. So we had to hastily regroup. And so instead of it being a 400 metre, it's actually a 300 metre because we did breaststroke, backstroke, freestyle. Okay. The other thing was I didn't really know the capability of the swimmers and we were really quite vastly different. So when we were doing the editing the footage, it was quite apparent that, that the pacing of the swimming was quite different through the different swimmers so I wanted to kind of help to create a sense of a race and the atmosphere so that that's kind of informed a lot of the editing decisions and also the, the kind of music that was used. Why was it important for you for it to actually be filmed in Mexico? I was really interested in the the legitimacy of the site and actually using the Olympic swimming pool became really important so while I was in Mexico I also did the around the stadium walk piece yes. and that was that was the stadium that was used for the opening ceremony I tried to inject as much sort of truism into the project as I could which informed my choice of the locations when I was in Wellington or you know I, I did the fake lighting of the flame by running up the lower base steps and yes. I mean there's there's certain things that I could do that played with different ideas of fantasy and humor but I was really interested in the location and the site 
for the swim, especially initially because I thought it was going to be the original swimmers and they just clung on to that yes. as a goal. Yes. I wanted to talk a bit about the feminist politics at play. As you said at the beginning, you're interested in the ageing female body and the kind of taboo of that and, and its place within kind of society and culture. And in one write-up about your work, you quoted Susan Sontag, the idea of an old woman in a bathing suit being attractive or even just acceptable looking <laughs> is inconceivable. I was just thinking Sontag, she can be so like caustically specific. <laughs> like one of her very good. So I love just even just acceptable looking is so good. Yeah. And I had kind of two questions in relation to this, one of which was, how did it actually feel just to be in your togs, in that pool, in Mexico? Like, what was the bodily experience of that? And I also wondered, has have you found that your feminist politics have kind of changed as you have got older? Is this work that you wouldn't have made earlier? Mm. Do you kind of see things differently? They're kind of mm. two slightly different questions. Yeah, yeah. I think my politics have shifted and changed and informed also my own personal experiences of being I'll say a sort of an athlete, not world-shattering athlete, but, <laughs> you know, as you as you get older, you I became aware of a couple of things. One was your body has changed and also you've sort of, in a weird kind of a way, you've become both invisible and hyper-visible. I don't know why, I don't know how it happens, but you talk to a lot of women when they go through um, menopause and they experience a sense of suddenly becoming invisible. Mm. And I, I experienced it myself. So part of the work about the restaging was me very much wanting to make visible the aging female body, mm-hmm. of which I'm now a representative of. And the hypervisibility thing is like sometimes you just feel so uncomfortably super visible when you're in your togs. Mm. So yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely wanted to address those and sort of bring them to the fore through actually doing the restagings myself. Yeah, I feel like there's just recently in mainstream media, there's been quite a lot of, disc- there've been a couple of big books that have come out about menopause and um, calls for employers to make more, not concessions, but make you know, be more flexible for women who are going through menopause and recognize it as kind of the major thing that mm-hmm. it is. You look so happy at the end of that video, by the way, standing on the podium with the other woman. It's such a nice oh, shot. Yeah. It's a really great shot, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. They were an amazing bunch of women. Yeah. 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 The language barrier was quite interesting. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and where did you get the officials from? The pillow bearer and the person giving the medal? Oh, okay. Um, Abdon, the, the chap giving the medal, he's the one of the security guards at the swimming pool. So. Oh, right. We, we managed to track down a, a brown blazer for him to wear. That was the official uniform for the people for the Six State Olympics. And Kata, the woman who's carrying the, the medals, Kata Bahaka, she was actually my producer in Mexico City and she oh, got right. <laughs> talked into starring <laughs> yeah. role. A starring role, yeah. So yeah. We, we sort of scooted off down to one of the markets and found the frock that she was wearing. Oh, cool. <laughs> I think that your presentation of the aging woman female body is also kind of explicit in the amazing work Space Girl Dance, in which you dance in a silver tight jumpsuit in front of these kind of decrepit but impressive modernist monuments in Mexico, which I believe were kind of installed as part of the 1968 Olympics. 
Yeah, that's that's right. And in the work, you're restaging a dance that Raquel Welch did for some TV feature in 1970. I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about how you performed this work. You look like you're having fun in it as well. Yeah, I discovered that these there were about 20 sculptures that were commissioned for the 68 Olympics, and they were positioned along this road called the Route of Friendship. They were all massive concrete monuments, mm-hmm. and all by men, I think, except for one. And so, you know, they've got this, they were the epitome of kind of modernist masculinity. And in Raquel's original video, she's sort of, uh, she's wearing her Barbarella outfit and she's flanked by the two guys that are wearing silver bodysuits. And she's really flirtatious. And um, it's almost a phallic dance, actually. Yeah. Um, I decided it was just too good. It just had to be done. Yeah. So a friend made me, um, I decided that I wasn't going to do the Barbarella outfit. Though. <laughs> was, yeah. Yeah, um, but I, a friend made the silver suit for me. Of course, in the meantime, those sculptures have been kind of moved around and Mexico City has just exploded. And so there's like these big, you know, motorways, multi-layered things and intersections. And so we managed to find a small group of them, about seven or eight, and they're the ones that, that are in the video. I should have taken some music with me, but I forgot to. And so I was kind of having to dance badly. Oh, so you didn't hear any music? No. Oh, it's all right. No, I didn't. And because I'm such a crap dancer, I was um, pretty much just doing some kind of weird workout. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some sort of aerobics thing. So Chris... My husband was standing behind the camera woman, Katri. I had Katri and Kata, but the Katri was the camera woman. And he's trying to sort of, you know, show me moves and I'm like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's it's really fun to watch and it's a really fun and funny work, but it's also, yeah, not to underplay, I don't mean to underplay the kind of seriousness as well. Like that's an intervention, as you say, into yeah. this kind of male space. And I often find with those kind of drop sculptures of like massive, inevitably male static sculptures in space, it is actually very hard to intervene with those, if you know what I mean. Like, I feel like your work is kind of a a comment on the way they have taken up space and how those kind of public monuments commemorate events or whatever. But it's also actually, I think it's very tricky to do as you've done, kind of like question them. Oh, no, I think you hit the nail on the head, though. I, I was very much, that, that work was very much about usurping the power of those monuments. Mm. Because now they're quite decayed. There is a trust in Mexico City now that is, they want to, you know, renovate them and they've made a start. But what I loved was inverting that original video. So there was the beautiful woman dancing in front of the pristine sculptures. And now there's me as an older woman kind of taking over the space mm. and the sculptures themselves are kind of a bit dilapidated as well so we're all getting a bit older <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah I actually watched the Raquel Welch just before on YouTube it was quite yeah quite funny I was trying to imagine the rest of the TV series or the TV sort of like thing that it was a part of I was like what is going on here yeah yeah I was gonna ask you Sandy so another work in the series recalling Tui where you record a kind of phone call that you had with Tui Shipston or kind of preparation for the phone call, essentially. And as you say, Tui said no to your invitation to participate in this restaging of the event. 
And all this kind of not quite right bits kind of are woven through the series of work. So Turi said, no, you couldn't track down the other swimmers for the 400 meter medley. You cry a work that we'll talk about in a bit where you kind of restage the opening ceremony in the Olympics at the stadium. And I just kind of wanted to unpack a little bit why you were interested in failure and maybe what the paradox of it is, is, is in the title of your PhD. Mm-hmm. I think the thing about failure for me was I started thinking about failure in competition in terms of how it relates to both sport and to art. And when you think about, like here in New Zealand, of course, we have the Walters Prize and there's all sorts of, you know, ways of judging artists and judging artworks. Mm. In the same way that sport has a system where you're rated and judged. And I think like, you know, Tracy Moffat's work, Fourth, is a really great work. That what is that work? She um, photographed the people who came in fourth um, at the Sydney Olympics. And she talks about them as having like this expressionless mask. They're obviously just trying to deal with the fact that they came fourth, so close to a medal, but they just didn't get there. Mm. And I think it highlights that sort of those ideas of failure straight away for me in both sport and art. When I was thinking about the swim, I was very much thinking about these ideas of how you can critique the idea of failure and competition in both sport and art. And kind of critique, is is the paradox then that failure is a kind of success or is that too simple? Yeah, sorry, I'm losing my thread here. But um, so the, the paradox of failure actually is that it becomes a really rich terrain to actually make art. Right, and, I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, where it took me was into this area of working with risk and precariousness and chance. But the whole project was a six-year journey. A lot of it was following leads, trying to track down people and and just trying to actually get the shoot organised in Mexico City. I mean, the whole thing was premised on meeting the right person, talking to the right person, or that's why I sort of started experimenting with these different works along the way, because I wanted to put myself in this position of potential failure in in the works as well, but playing with the idea of failure at the same time. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I wonder if I wonder if the moving image is also particularly not suited, but commensurate with this idea of failure because it is such a collaborative production, a way of producing mm. art. For example, if you were you know, drawing in your studio or doing something that's more sort of individual studio-based practice, there's less contingencies, would you say? Ah, oh, yes. You're probably right. I think because a big part of it for me also was interrogating this idea of restaging as a video art methodology, separate to what we tend to think of as artistic reenactments mm-hmm. or historic reenactments. This is about me restaging these moments and through restaging those moments, using the methodology of video art, really starting to unpack these ideas of you know, failure and risk and uncertainty. And mm. I, I sort of came up with a, a little phrase or two words that underpinned it. And I started calling it precarious optimism. So mm. 
I was buoyed along by these I, this constant optimism because I'm kind of an optimistic person. And I had to be to kind of see this thing through. But at the same time, you know, it kind of wobbled on this kind of knife edge of precariousness the whole way through. And so I kind of, I, I drew on that as a sort of a way to inform the methodology. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting that like kind of precariousness is sort of as a generative space to be in. Do you think, I'm just thinking about the restaging and the reenacting that you were talking about. Sorry, restaging rather than reenacting, which is what you said, isn't it? Yes. Because there's quite a lot of restaging in your previous video works, is that right? What work are you thinking of? <laughs> Wearing you wear the disguise, is that right? Oh, is it? Yeah, that's part of the same, yeah. Oh, that's part, part of the of same the, series. Yes, oh. it is, yeah, yeah. Um, so how to wear a disguise, that came about because I wasn't able to track down the two East German swimmers. So the other swimmers I was able to track down, but I couldn't find anything online at all um, about the two East German swimmers. And so I really had a brick wall. And so I came up with this really great idea, or so I thought, that I would hire a private investigator in Germany to track them down. So I found I found this PI online and commissioned him. And he he did manage to locate them for me. But right from the start, he'd always been really clear that under German privacy law, he couldn't give me their contact details mm-hmm. and that he would give them my contact details and they would contact me if they chose to. So anyway, I booked a flight to Germany. And um, by the time I landed in Germany, he'd been in touch to say he contacted them both, but neither of them wanted to talk to me. And I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) What now? (laughs) Yeah. You were in a precarious place. I was in a very precarious place. Another potential failure just went boof right in the face. And so what I did was, I say I, so it's Chris, my husband, we um, we went to Chemnitz, which is where they used to train in the swimming pool there. We found the swimming pool. And that's when... Chris shot me on his phone just doing the, the two laps in the swimming pool. Mm. And then while we were there, we went to the Stasi Museum in Berlin. And I saw this display of how the Stasi taught normal people to wear disguises and be spies. It was like how to how to wear disguises. And it was really freaky. And the thing, the thing is that. One of the East German swimmers in the original race, she came sixth, and look, she just completely lost it there. She broke down. It was just, I've seen the original footage, and it was mm. just appalling. So she did not have the expressionless mask. She was yes. completely distraught. So it kind of made me realise the pressure that those young athletes are under, and really the whole biopolitics that comes into the nation building that's behind the Olympic Games. Mm. And so when I got back to Wellington, I couldn't get out of my head actually. And I I decided that I was going to restage the instructions on how to wear a disguise. These books were exhibited at Room Gallery, is that right? Yes, they were. How did you go about the process of kind of editing and deciding on the kind of exhibition frame and where things were placed in the gallery space with all these works that are very um, interconnected? What I did was in the room gallery with the help, the wonderful help of 
Alec Guthrie in Auckland. We built two fake walls. So when you first walked in, instead of walking straight into the gallery, there was a wall. And I used that to give the sense of a changing room. So I had all the togs that we wore on the swim Mm -hmm. on hooks. And I dunked them in chlorine first, just evoke that sense of going through a changing room. I tested it first with a chlorine solution on some old togs of mine and they were fine. So when I actually dunked the togs in the chlorine, to my horror, the two East German ones faded, like mottled and faded. And it was like, wow, that's really freaky because they were the, that's the country that no longer exists. And I thought, yeah. wow, it's pretty amazing, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so when you walk in, you kind of walk through this kind of changing room. And then because there's two galleries at room, I wanted to make it clear that you then turned back around into the space on the right-hand side. And there was also a glass wall for the archive room. so. What I did was I had these uh, swimming lane graphics printed that I mounted on the wall that kind of then steered people into the space. Mm-hmm. And so the first work was the TUI work because for me that's that's the start of it all, yeah. the recalling TUI. And then I had the Chemnitz swimming in the pool work just playing on a tablet, so it was quite small. The other works, so there was um, the dance work, space skill dance, yeah, and the lighting of the flame in Lyle Bay, they all kind of, to my mind, they kind of belong together in a group because they had a commonality of sort of a humour that ran through them. Mm. And the other two, the swim work and the, the stadium walk, they were always, I think, my heroes. So I had the three smaller, well, I think it was my humorous works playing on monitors mounted on the wall and then the other two works were projected large mm. onto two walls that intersected. Mm, cool. Oh, I wish I had been able to see the show. I can, yeah, as you explain it, I can totally see how that makes sense and their relationship to each other. Yeah, those bigger kind of cinematic works yes. at a bigger size. Yeah. I have one more question for you, Sandy. You've finished quite a massive project in your PhD and I wondered where you were at and what your plans were next. Like it must be quite a tricky time to negotiate as an artist kind of stepping out of academia stepping away from what's been you know a really ongoing line of inquiry Mm, mm, yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's funny isn't it you sort of feel like you've had the rug tugged out from underneath your feet yeah Um, I have another restaging work in mind that I want to do Mm -hmm. and it is to do with swimming (laughs) but I also um yeah, I don't want to make everything about swimming and restaging. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking, Sandy, you should go and see, if you haven't already, Erica Van Zon's show at Jana Miller's Gallery. It's all about her childhood experiences and memories of swimming. And she has a similar humour to you. Yeah, she kind of employs all these interesting things like pool toys and there's this great work with the ubiquitous plaster at the bottom of the oh, lost plaster. I, at the bottom of the pool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I laughed when I saw that because when I was in a swim squad, I'd often see a plaster floating by. Yes, know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, I think, and this is anything else you would like to talk about, Sandy? Yeah. No, I, I think that's it. I could waffle on for ages so you need to yeah. <laughs> I think you waffled it all it was really great <laughs> kāti aki i kōne. let's leave it here for now nā mihi nui to Sandy for joining me today and thanks to all of our CircuitCast listeners keep an ear out for our next episode 
Hekuna mai mena mei.